Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourself. Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 201. Buiti, binafi, bienvenidos, bitches, and thank you for listening. Yeah. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and those who are othered and the victims, because contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, able-bodied, cisgendered, white dudes. And neither are the victims. And these crimes rarely get any public attention because... Because why? The news <laughs> is a racist. Can I get an amen or a allegedly? Yes. Allegedly. <laughs> Thank you. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth. And I just happen to be white. That's right. She's one of the good ones. She hasn't disappointed me yet. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Not yet. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists, just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Christopher Dwayne Peterson, a.k.a. the shotgun killer, who was convicted of four murders in Indiana in 1990. All right. Well, before we get into it, how you doing? Well, it's still super duper hot here in Phoenix. So over the weekend, I went to see Oppenheimer in the cold theater. It was very nice. (laughs) I bet. Was it good? I liked it. Yeah, it was good. Okay, It's really long, but uh, I enjoyed it. Awesome. And then the next day, I took my grandson to a trampoline park. Oh, fun. I love trampoline parks. I'm too old for them, but I love them. Yeah, I know. I just sit there and watch the kids. They're nuts. Oh, you don't jump? <laughs> no, I don't jump. Oh, my God. <laughs> too old. 
So on our way, well, we went out to the car to go to the trampoline park and there was a bird <gasps> laying on the driveway by my car, just kind of flopping around. Oh. There was something wrong with it. So my grandson was very concerned. Yeah. Like, oh, I bet. Oh. So <laughs> I put it in a box and then uh-huh. later on I took it to a wildlife sanctuary, which I didn't know that there was one, but I Googled it because I didn't know what to do with this bird. So I found a wildlife oh. sanctuary and took it. They made it really easy to, oh, to bring wow. the bird to them. And oh. yeah. Do you know what kind of bird it was? It was a Gila woodpecker. (gasps) Wow, that's so cool. It was a beautiful bird. The wings were like striped and it had a little red patch on its head. Like Woody. Like Woody the woodpecker, yeah. (laughs) 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 Yeah, so it was probably a male because I guess the females don't have that red Yeah, girl birds are very ugly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's really, it's It's wild. We have bird feeders around our house. I mean, I can't tell you how much I love Georgia, but we have bird feeders around our house and there's colorful birds that like hang out there every day. And the colorful ones are always the males, the males. in the bird yeah. world. And the girls are just like, whatever. Hey, dude. <laughs> but the men are like, look at me. I'm here. <laughs> so that was my weekend. How are you doing? I'm good. I love all of that for you. It's so beautiful. Oh, I just thanks. love it. Life is good. No complaints. The weather is glorious. Summer is almost over and these kids are taking their asses back to school very soon. So I'm very excited. Yeah, my grandson is already in school. Oh, dang. Yeah, they started like last week. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. I thought we started early. That is real. Oh, that it's must nuts. be so nice for your daughter. Whew, I'm yeah. jealous. <laughs> well, she's got to work. So, oh, dang <laughs> and she works it. with kids. So, no oh, break. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into some listener letters. Okay. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. Hmm. What's in the bag, Beth? Well, we got another big old bag, which I love. Mm. I love it. Thanks, guys. Me too. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Yeah. Hip hop air horns yeah. to everyone. All of you. Yeah. <laughs> But specifically, I wanted to say thank you to Shelly Hirschberg, Ja Mulan, Flute Potter, and Neji25 for your five-star reviews. Yes, thank yeah, you, Hip Hop Airhorns. And we also received an email from Gwen who knew Juanita Purdy, one of the victims of Billy Shamirmir. Oh, wow. She said that she worked with Juanita for 15 years, and she was like a second mother to her. And just for time's sake, I won't read the whole email, but she said that Juanita was, quote, an amazing woman, wife, grandmother, and friend. She lost probably the love of her life a few years before she was murdered. She adored Mr. Purdy, and he worshipped her. I miss them both every day, unquote. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, Gwen, for, yeah, for your email. You. And rest in power to Juanita Purdy. And thank you for giving us some more information about her. Yeah, we thank you. often cannot find it because you know why, but we appreciate mm-hmm. you. And uh, hip up Airhorn. Yeah, thank you. And please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. <laughs> and we may feature it on a future episode. 
Also, join us on Patreon, where we have literally hundreds of hours of bonus content, and we have a video club for our 12-plus patrons, where you can interact with us in person. And the last episode that we did, the Q&A episode, was a live episode on Patreon. So That's we might right. do that again. Yeah. It was so much It was fun. really fun. Yeah. <laughs> so we didn't get any new Patreons. Patreon kind of deceived me a little bit because we had some people adjust actually increase their donations. So thank you all for those. But I just wanted to give a shout out to all the Patreons, our day ones, the returning champs. We love all you so much. And we have been so blessed to be able to continue doing this show and get out in the world and see you all. Yeah. Especially at the crime cons and things like that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Hip hop air horns to all the Patreons. All righty. Well, let's take a quick break and we're going to get into the story when we come back. Okay. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. We're back! (laughs) Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Our subject today is Christopher Dwayne Peterson, a.k.a. the Shotgun Killer who was found guilty of committing four murders, but confessed to shooting seven people in a series of random murders across northwest Indiana from October 1990 to January 1991. So it's not a very long span of time. No No stats in this episode. We are just going to move straight into the love and light portion of our show where we Just say rest in power to the victims and love and light to all those left in the wake of these senseless murders. Yeah. The victims are Lawrence Mills, 43, Rhonda Hammersley, 25, Harshand Dhaliwal, 54. Two brothers were victims, George Balboski, 66, and Eli Balboski, who was 60. Aura Wildermuth, 54, and Marie Mitzler, who was 48. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, the setting is Gary, Indiana, an industrial city 30 miles east of Chicago. 
The population is now about 68,000, which is down from a high of 178,000 in 1960. Mm. So, oh, wow. Big drop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Today, it is predominantly black and is surrounded by largely white suburbs and towns. Yeah, I did some TikTok um, investigation (laughs) during my research (laughs) into this episode. And there's a lot of abandoned buildings and businesses in Gary, Indiana. And a lot of it has to do with the rise and fall of capitalism and racism. So Gary was founded in 1906 on the undeveloped southern shore of Lake Michigan by the U.S. Steel Corporation, who acquired the land for purposes of building a steel plant. And Gary developed as a company town to support the plant. The area that would become Gary was historically occupied by the Miami and Potawatomi peoples, who had long used the Indiana Dunes just east of the future side of Gary for hunting, plant gathering, and ceremonial activities. The 1821 Treaty of Chicago forced Native tribes to cede their land in Michigan and northern Indiana to the United States. Gary experienced rapid industrialization and vast immigration in the years after its founding. Most of the manual workers at Gary Works were immigrants from Eastern and Southeastern Europe, but many were Black. Gary had one of the highest percentages of Black residents of any Northern city during this time. Most of the Black and immigrant manual workers were only able to find housing in the patch section of Gary, also known as the South Side. In 1912, Froebel School was opened which served the Black and immigrant students from the patch. Students of many nationalities and races attended the school. It was the city's first integrated school and was also one of the first integrated schools in the entire United States. By 1924, it was approximately 22% Black and 77% immigrant. But before you get too excited... (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't. (laughs) Yeah, too excited. Integrated is a term that should be used loosely here. The school was internally segregated with separate rooms for Black students, so there would be no race mixing. Black seniors attended a separate prom, and their pictures were excluded from the yearbook. Mm. Black students were barred from joining extracurricular activities, and they could only use the swimming pool on the day before it was cleaned. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that segregated prom thing is still a thing. Still a thing, yeah. Yeah, as of the mid-2010s, maybe even 2023, I haven't checked. Just a slight culture corner. Welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. So integration is often discussed as like a huge accomplishment for white America to feel good about itself. Like, look at us, America. We ate our vegetables. Can we go play video games now? (laughs) But (laughs) pre-integration, Black people just wanted equality and not to be treated as second-class citizens. And not all of Black America was necessarily asking for integration. And integration has come at a great cost and essentially diminished the value and economic power and voting power that some Black communities and people, you know, if those communities hadn't already been burnt down by white terrorists, had already created. So, for example, take the Negro Baseball League, right? They were doing good, selling all kinds of tickets. Who's the famous baseball player? Satchel, Satchel Page. Satchel Page, selling out all kinds of venues, etc., and having a good old time. But with integration, they lost that. And because the white leagues poached all of the black players, those Negro leagues went out of business. And then there were a bunch of black schools with black students who were looked after and cared for by the adults and the administration within them. But with integration, that was lost as well. So schools only integrated students, not the teachers, not the administrators, mm. and they lost their jobs. And so some black communities pre-integration 
had their own hotels, their own businesses, restaurants, banks, hospitals, and a lot of them went out of business. And I don't necessarily share the sentiment, but I heard an old black man from North Carolina say, y'all protested in March just to sit at the front of the bus. Now, not to own the bus company or for an economic stake in the bus system, right? Anyway, all that to say integration, like all progress, isn't perfect because there is still to this day overwhelming evidence that we are more segregated than ever and the racial wealth gap is greater than ever before. But at the same time, white ice isn't necessarily colder. Yeah. I'm done. (laughs) So on the north side of the city, Emerson School served white students, although very few European immigrants' children attended this school. But in 1927, 18 students from an all-black school, which was overcrowded and in need of modernization, were reassigned to Emerson. On Monday, September 26, 1927, over 600 white Emerson students went on strike. Guess why? Mm. They carried a banner that read, quote, we won't go back until Emerson is white, oh my unquote. God. As a result, educators and city officials agreed to resegregate the school. Mm. The 18 black students who had attempted to attend Emerson School were forced to return to the black school. They just wanted to they go just to wanted school. They just wanted to go to school. Yeah. This is nuts. Again, <laughs> like America's patting itself on the back. Look how far yeah. we've come. But it shouldn't have taken all this time yeah. or this effort and violence. In yeah, the that face was of the less effort. than 100 years ago. Yeah. yeah. These people are still alive, probably. Well, they could be. Yeah. Could be. So this happened again on September 18th, 1945. It happened again? It happened again. Oh, oh my And God. this time it was at Froebel School, which we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. And it happened two weeks after World War II officially ended. Okay. The Interdenominational Ministerial Alliance, composed of black ministers, issued an appeal to reason to the citizens of Gary, pointing out that, quote, it is indeed regrettable to note that after the nation has spent approximately $190 billion, the colored citizens of Gary have sent about 4,000 of their sons, brothers, and husbands to battlefields around the world and have supported every war effort that our government has called upon us to support in a united effort to destroy Nazism and to banish from the face of the earth all that Hitler, Mussolini, and Tojo stood for, to find in our midst those who are endeavoring to spread disunity, race hatred, and Hitlerism in our community, unquote. And how on the nose is that? It's on the nose. Was this said yesterday? Yeah, Is this a quote from yesterday? (laughs) It sounds like it could have been, (laughs) right? It sure does. Gary Mayor Joseph E. Finnerty, the Gary Council of Churches, and the school PTA also issued appeals, hoping to bring an end to the walkouts. Other opponents of the strike included the NAACP and CIO United Steel Workers Union. Many blamed parents of the striking students for the racial tension existent in the school, stating that racial hatred was not inherent, but learned at home. True that. Mm. White leaders in Chicago stated in an unprecedented article in the recorder, quote, These racist demonstrations have been an insult to democracy and to the hundreds of thousands of whites and Negroes who deplore this American form of Hitlerism. We further pledge not to walk out on democracy and on this problem, which has its roots principally in the attitude and actions of white men, not the colored, unquote. Yeah, Martin Luther King went to Chicago 
And he was like, the racism I seen here would make the whites of the South blush. Wow. (laughs) That's how wild it was. Wow. But student Leonard Lavanda, spokesman for the striking committee, or as some articles called him, the quote, student hate leader, unquote. (laughs) Where is this guy, Leonard, these days anyway? I looked. (laughs) Is he he still around? I don't know. Oh, my gosh. Maybe he changed There were lots of Leonard Lavenda, so I didn't know which one he was. I always wonder when you look at those pictures of white people yelling and throwing things yeah. at students just Where trying to who now? are these yeah. people yeah and do they still have jobs yeah somebody get them <laughs> so anyway lavanda said that the walkout was the result of quote a long series of episodes provoked by the behavior of negro students mm. unquote lies bullshit mm-hmm. yep <laughs> the strikers also blamed the principal of the school richard newsom whom they believed gave preferential treatment to black students mm. hmm. no The strike continued until October 1st when students finally returned to classes after the school board agreed to formally investigate the charges against Principal Newsom. By October 21st, the investigation came to a close and Newsom was exonerated. Angered by these results, students staged another walkout on October 29th. Yeah. Aren't you guys tired? <laughs> it doesn't the hate, isn't it exhausting to hate so much? Yeah. Whew. So searching for a way to bring a final end to the strike, a Gary-based community organization dedicated to social harmony helped bring Frank Sinatra to the school to perform and talk with students about racial tension in the city. But the striking committee refused to back down. So this surprised me because I didn't know that Frank Sinatra in his early years was anti-racist because the Frank Sinatra that I know is from like the 70s. And he at that time was like super conservative. So, oh, no, there. Well, he had a long life, right? Many chapters to the man. True, true. But my understanding was as far as being fair to black people because he performed with a lot of them. And and I think also studied their vocal talents to to model after his own really stuck his neck out for black people. So interesting. Yeah. It was not until November 12th when the state superintendent agreed to study conditions at Froebel that the striking students returned to classes. Even then some mothers of the parents committee continued to oppose the students return. Oh, for fuck's sake. So due in large part to what was being called the quote unquote hate strikes at Froebel, the Gary Board of Education adopted a policy on August 27th, 1946 to end segregation and discrimination in the city's public schools. Yay. And in 1949, the Indiana General Assembly passed a law to abolish segregation in the state's public schools. Despite these measures, because of segregated residential patterns, De facto segregation in the school system was still present. On November 7th, 1967, Richard Hatcher, the first black mayor of Gary, was elected. He and Carl Stokes, the mayor of Cleveland, were elected on the same day and were the first black people to be elected mayors of a U.S. city with more than 100,000 people. Gary had only one neighborhood that permitted black families, Midtown. And this was formerly known as the Patch. Mm. By the late 60s, overcrowding in the Midtown neighborhood was a community crisis. Hatcher pushed for an open occupancy ordinance. I wonder if that's where the Jacksons lived. Once the open occupancy ordinance was in place, Black families began moving into formerly all-white neighborhoods. And white people left the city in droves. They couldn't get out fast enough, (laughs) taking many businesses with them. 
and tax revenue for roads and schools. At the same time, the steel industry that powered Gary began a steep decline as deindustrialization began in the United States. The 1972 presidential election year was a pivotal year in Black politics. Black folks were tired of law and order policies, and activists and Black leaders became focused on setting a Black political agenda. Black leaders formulated a plan of staging a political convention, but needed a city to host it. Mayor Hatcher volunteered Gary, and in 1972, Gary, Indiana hosted the National Black Political Convention, which drew over 10,000 Americans of color. Interestingly, the NAACP chose to boycott due to the event barring white people from participating. Huh, that is interesting. Mm -hmm. Hatcher thought that the National Black Political Convention would bring attention and new investment to Gary. But the opposite outcome occurred as more businesses and people divested from Gary. Mm. Gary has suffered a 55% population loss since its peak in the 1960s. Gary is still inhabited, but it's home to more than 13,000 abandoned buildings and structures. Gary has been stigmatized for decades as a city of crime and drugs. Between 1994 and 1995, Gary ranked as the most dangerous place in the entire United States. Today, more than 84% of Gary is Black. One woman was quoted in a Guardian article saying, quote, Racism killed Gary. The whites left Gary and the blacks couldn't. Simple as that, unquote. Yeah, that, I don't need to say anything else. Now let's get into Christopher (laughs) Dwayne Peterson's early life. Well, we don't have a lot of details about Christopher Dwayne Peterson's early life, but his father was a career army soldier. And Christopher moved with his family from post to post, living in Cleveland, Ohio, Fort Riley, Kansas, and El Paso, Texas. Some of the mitigating factors that were later brought up in court were that he was neglected in childhood by his father, and he had an extreme emotional disturbance. Christopher attended high school in Gary, and after graduation, he went to Atlanta to live with an uncle while working in security at the airport parking lot. In May of 1988, he went into the Marine Corps. He spent two years in the Marines and became a corporal stationed at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. There, he became disillusioned with the military. He says he found the Marines to be filled with hypocrisy, factionalism, racism, and impersonalism. While in the Marines, he was trying to cope with the death of his son, Christopher, who was born on July 8, 1988, and died in January of 1989. That's really sad. Yeah, it is. He said, quote, It left a lasting scar for me about the Marine Corps. They didn't care. There is no healing. Marines are not supposed to suffer. But people are human. I was 19. There is nothing in life like losing a child, unquote. Yeah, that's... Yeah. So in May of 1990, miserable and depressed, Christopher went AWOL and moved back in with his mother and older sister in Gary. He was unemployed and sold drugs to get by. His mother allowed other persons to stay at the apartment and gave them keys, including Christopher's friend, Antoine McGee, and his mother's boyfriend, Major Moore. Christopher was described by friends and family as caring and supportive of others and generous with friends, driving one friend to and from work because the friend did not have any transportation. He and his girlfriend had been dating since high school, and she said that he was never violent towards her or anyone else unless they provoked him. He also helped out her family whenever they needed. Christopher Peterson was 21 years old at the time of the murder. So now let's get into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. Between October 30th, 1990 and December 18th, 1990, there were a series of murders in northern Indiana in which seven people were killed and several others were wounded by assault with a shotgun. 
The shootings occurred in bursts, and victims appeared to be chosen at random. Most of those killed suffered a shotgun blast to the head at close range. The first series of murders began in Lake County on October 30th, 1990. At about 7.30 p.m., Lawrence Mills, a 43-year-old insurance salesman from Hammond, was killed by a shotgun blast to the head as he sat in his car outside an American Legion post in Griffith, Indiana. Patrons leaving the establishment found Lawrence dead in his car, still dressed in the three-piece business suit he had worn that day to work. There were no witnesses, but patrons said that they saw a white car leaving the scene. While processing the crime scene, police found a palm print on Lawrence Mills's car. Later that same night at about 8.30 p.m., a half mile north from the Legion Hall, a 34-year-old woman was dropping off a package at a home in Griffith when she heard the crunch of dry leaves. She turned and saw a man fire a shotgun. The shot missed. She screamed and the shooter fled. The woman was unable to identify her attacker, but shotgun pellets were found at the scene. At about 10 p.m., 17-year-old Ann Nikolich of St. John was approached by a man as she exited her car in a parking garage. He ordered her to be quiet, but she screamed, and he shot, narrowly missing her, then fled. She reportedly told police that her attacker was a black man, but a police report said that she described him as white. Okay. So shortly afterwards, at about 10.20 p.m., Rhonda Hammersley, 25, and Carrie Jilson, 28, were chatting outside of a Petrel Mart gas station in Cedar Lake where they worked. They had just completed their closing routine and were waiting for Rhonda's husband to come pick her up. Carrie was sitting in the driver's seat of her car while Rhonda chatted with her through the driver's side window. A man walked around the corner of the gas station and, and without a word, shot Rhonda point-blank in the head with a sawed-off shotgun. Mm. He then turned toward Carrie and aimed his shotgun at her. Carrie fell to her right onto the passenger's front side of her vehicle. (gasps) Almost simultaneously, the shotgun discharged, missing Carrie and hitting the inside panel of the passenger door. Terrifying. Yeah. Carrie pretended to be dead. Ooh, smart. As she lay there, she felt what she assumed to be the barrel of the shotgun Mm. pushing against the back of her head. Oh, my God. But the man didn't fire. She heard someone say, quote, okay, that's enough. Let's go, unquote. Moments later, Carrie raised up from the seat. Seeing no one around, she threw the car into reverse and sped off to a nearby liquor store where she called police. Carrie described her attacker as a white man, but she later told police that he could have been Hispanic. And that's her words. Well, we know transracial witness identification is very poor, no matter who you are, really. According to Peterson's friend, Ronald Harris, that evening, he and Peterson were cruising the roads, quote, out in the boondocks, unquote, drinking beer and smoking cannabis when they stopped to buy more rolling papers. Peterson got out of the white Nissan he was driving and headed across the street to a service station near Cedar Lake, taking a shotgun with him. Harris heard a sound like a car backfiring. Peterson came back to the car and threw a woman's purse at him. Harris said he shoved it aside and they drove away. Back at the Petromart station, Rhonda Hammersley was dead. The random murder spree terrorized residents in Lake County. Parents and local government officials feared for children's safety while out trick-or-treating that Halloween. Ooh, I bet. Yeah. A lot of people chose to stay home after sunset rather than risk going out. Retailers reported a sharp drop in nighttime sales, and police reported an increase in gun permits. Carrie worked with the police on a composite picture of the gunman. After finishing the composite picture, Carrie expressed doubts about its accuracy. But 
The drawing was distributed on flyers. It included Carrie's description of the gunman printed along the bottom of it. Male, Caucasian, 5 foot 10, early to mid 20s, slender build, dark eyes, prominent brow line, light complexion, no facial hair, dark brown collar length hair. I understand the urgency that law enforcement may have felt to protect the community and get get this guy word yeah. out, right, and get this guy. But if it's not accurate, they're doing the entire community a disservice. Yeah, Hello, there's no point. Yeah, right. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> you can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. The second series of murders began on the evening of December 13, 1990. Harchand Dhaliwal, 54, was working inside a gas station in Portage. Harchand had arrived in the United States from India three or four years prior. He and a friend partnered up to buy the gas station and had just paid the down payment the day before. Oh, uh, that's sad. Mm-hmm. At about 6.20 p.m., Harchand was killed in an apparent robbery. He was shot in the face, and about $328 was missing from the cash register. According to Ronald Harris, he was waiting in a car while Peterson went into the gas station, shotgun in hand, then aimed and fired the weapon at Harchand. Harris said he heard a gun blast, then saw the man fall. He remembered that Harchand was wearing a white or light-colored turban. Peterson then came back to the car and threw money spattered with the blood of the victim at him. 
the stories that Harris tells, Peterson's always doing the thing and then throwing things at him. <laughs> Purse, <laughs> money. <That's>, wow. <laughs> yeah. What a friend. What a guy. <laughs> Thank you for being a friend. <laughs> Then on December 15th, 1990, at about 8.20 p.m., Aura Wildermuth, 54, of Lake Station, was shot to death at a Gainer Bank ATM in Gary. Peterson later told police he shot Wildermuth twice with a shotgun because Wildermuth started cursing at him after the first blast. Like, wow. of course he did. Yeah. <laughs> you just shot yeah. me, motherfucker. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Wildermuth died from gunshot wounds to his head and body. Well, I'm, you know, at least he didn't like go down without you. He fought, you know what I mean? Yeah. But tragic. At 8.50 p.m., Marie Meitzler, 48, was working alone as the desk clerk in a Howard Johnson motel in Portage when she was shot to death in an apparent robbery. She suffered gunshot wounds to her face and neck and four hundred and sixty seven dollars was stolen. At 9.56 p.m., Robert Cotso, 49, an Indiana toll road attendant was shot and wounded at a toll plaza on Calumet Avenue. He lost part of his right ear after a man fired a shotgun at him as he worked inside a toll booth at the Hammond Interchange on the eastbound Indiana toll road. He described his attacker as a black man. I'm just bothered by these people just doing, they're just doing their jobs, just working, yeah. right? And just do, doing what they got to do. And somebody decides. Just, they're you know going to go I around and you shoot got. people. Yeah. yeah. Well, it just sounds like this guy, Robert Cotzo, was just in the toll booth mm-hmm. and they shot him. They My, just yeah. shot him. Yeah. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. Exactly. It's all nuts. It's Fruit Loops, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so on December 18th, 1990, at about 4.45 p.m., two immigrant brothers from Macedonia were murdered at their tailor shop in Gary. Eli Balofsky, 60, of Crown Point, and George Balofsky, 66, of Gary, were both shot to death inside Eli's quality tailoring in Gary. Eli was robbed of several hundred dollars in cash. Both men died from gunshot wounds to the head. A task force of local, state, and federal law enforcement was organized to investigate the murders, and at least one gun store reported a five-fold increase in the sale of firearms as a result of the murders. Wow. Many people stopped going out at night or went out armed. Local businesses and cities offered rewards for information. A toll-free tip hotline was jammed with calls. Police thought they knew two things about the shotgun killer based on witness statements. He was a slender white man with medium-length hair, and he drove a small, boxy white car. According to Antoine McGee, a friend of Peterson's, shortly after the Bolovsky killings, Peterson told McGee that he, quote, got the guys at the tailor shop, unquote and then describe the murders in detail. Interesting. I am still baffled throughout all of these that whoever was doing this was confused about the race of the shooter. You know, that seems... Oh, you mean the people, the the witnesses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because the picture of Dwayne Christopher Peterson, that's clearly a black man. I mean, I'm just wondering. I don't know. On January 28th, 1991, Peterson's mother told him that he could no longer live with her at her apartment. She helped him pack his belongings and took him to his girlfriend's house to stay, with the understanding that he was to turn himself in for being AWOL from the Marines. That evening at 10.45 p.m., Ronald Nitch, 31, a restaurant manager, took the night receipts from the restaurant to a bank in the South Lake Mall parking lot to deposit them. 
He had just made the deposit when he turned and saw a man with a handgun. Ronald was shot and the bullet went through his cheek and lodged in his neck. He ran away toward the mall and survived. Ronald identified his assailant as a black man wearing dark clothing. The attacker took his car. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. What do you got, Beth? Well, early on January 29th, while police were still at the scene of the shooting by the mall, investigators heard radio communications indicating a car matching the description of the vehicle taken in the robbery had been spotted near Ridge Road and Georgia Street in Gary. Soon after, the police saw a vehicle matching this description and, noting the license plate number, confirmed that it was a stolen car. The police also observed a copper Grand Am with two occupants, both of them black males, traveling with the Nissan Sentra. The driver of the Nissan Sentra stopped the car in the middle of the road, got out and ran. He was wearing a black jogging suit with purple markings, which matched Ronald's description of his assailant. That's so 1990s, a jogging suit. (laughs) A Nissan Sentra and a jogging suit. Let's go have a good time. So (laughs) shortly afterwards, another police officer observed two black males on foot in the vicinity, Antoine McGee and Major Moore one of whom, McGee, fit the description of the assailant who had just fled from police. The two men were transported to the police station for questioning as suspects in the robbery and shooting. McGee identified himself as the driver of the Copper Grand Am. Police interrogated McGee, whom police believed had shot Ronald Nitsch. McGee said he did not do it, and he told police that Peterson was responsible and was, in fact, the shotgun killer. This surprised law enforcement officers who had been searching up to that point for a white man with medium-length hair. What? (laughs) (laughs) McGee told police that Peterson had told him of his plan to commit a robbery and asked McGee to help. McGee admitted that he drove Peterson to the South Lake Mall, which why did Peterson need a ride? Peterson had a car. That's right. Yeah. Peterson was wearing a black jogging suit and carrying a handgun as he got out of the car and approached the bank. McGee then drove away, but looked back and saw a silver Nissan arrive at the bank. Later in the evening, he saw Peterson driving the same silver Nissan. McGee also told police details about the Balofsky brothers' killings that had not been made public, such as that one brother had been killed upstairs and the second brother downstairs. How does he know all these details? Yeah. The police went to Peterson's mother's apartment to look for Peterson. According to police, they received consent from his mother to search the apartment in an attempt to find Peterson. But Peterson's mother later disputed whether she gave police permission. Oh, I'm sure she did not. I'm 100% sure she did not. (laughs) (laughs) And they lied. I will confidently say they lied about that part. In any case, they did not find him, but while they were in Peterson's bedroom, they seized a sawed-off shotgun found in plain view in the closet. The officers also seized a duffel bag containing clothing and shells from the shotgun. The court later suppressed the duffel bag evidence because the items inside the bag were not in plain view and were therefore seized illegally. A gun expert later determined through ballistics testing that spent shells found at three murder scenes matched the gun found in Peterson's bedroom. Peterson owned a boxy white car, which witnesses had seen at several crime scenes, and his palm print matched prints lifted from Lawrence Mills's car. A black leather coat spattered with blood was also found. The blood was found to be human, but at the time, the five spatter marks were not enough to match with any of the victim's DNA. The jacket was later lost. Great job, Gary Police. You guys are professional police people? (laughs) What? (laughs) 
Police found Peterson at his girlfriend's apartment in Gary and took him in. Peterson was questioned by police until mid-afternoon, at which time he asked to speak with his mother. After a brief conversation, Peterson then asked if he could sleep on it. <laughs> That's very funny uh, to me. <laughs> Let me give it a think. <laughs> Let me sleep on it. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> that is, wow. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't know that you could do that. Like, tell the police you know what? I no. don't know if I, I don't know if I want to talk to you. So let me, I thought that you had, to, I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, it, it's you, up to the, it's, it's up to the police. I, he's been arrested. So, I mean, if he was just being questioned, then you can always leave. But if you've been arrested, you're kind of stuck there. Yeah. So it's up to the police. Like he could say, uh, can I sleep on it? And they're like, no. But, okay 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 thanks for <laughs> thanks friend i in i think my, i mean in correct my me mind, if I'm wrong. <laughs> well yeah i mean i i guess i thought i didn't realize when you're in custody that you can say i'll let me talk to you later <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh but he did so the next morning peterson was again interviewed by the police at which time he gave a taped confession you know how wendy feels about confessions but yeah. anyway confessing to committing all seven of the shotgun murders in the tapes peterson 22 at the time volunteered that his motive was hatred of white people. And this sounds like something the police made up. <laughs> he said the murders were fueled by rage, drugs, and alcohol. He signed several statements confessing to the shootings, but he later recanted his statements. So do you think that they wrote up the confession I think they and made just had it him all sign up. it? This, yeah. yeah, this is, you know, it reminds me of, remember when the FBI wrote those letters to Martin Luther King and was like, oh, yeah, you're talking jive, MLK, you know, like, <laughs> like, like, f like trying to speak like a black person. This sounds like they're they're putting words into like a black person's yeah. mouth. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think a black person would come out and say I killed like Samuel L. Jackson in that movie. Yeah, I shot him and I'd shoot him again. Um, when that, <laughs> In A Time to Kill, I think it is. That just doesn't sound to me like something somebody would confess to. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. So Peterson is a dark-skinned black man with short hair, which contradicted the composite sketch, which was based on statements from Carrie Jilson, who described the killer as a white man with medium length stringy hair. But they have to close the case, right? The community yeah. is probably on edge and they have a lot of pressure. So they get the confession, bada bing, bada boom. Case closed? No. <laughs> the incongruity upset the community so much that Gary Mayor Thomas Barnes sent a letter asking police to clarify the confusion about the suspect's race. What do you have to say for yourselves? <laughs> anyway, Henry Bennett, the head of the Gary branch of the NAACP, said his office received many calls from people, quote, disturbed about the complete turnaround pertaining to the shotgun killer, unquote. Explain yourselves. <laughs> Ronald J. Golston, a senior state parole officer and a black man who lived in Gary, said, quote, first, the police say it's a white guy. And then all of a sudden they arrest a black guy. Everybody around here said another one of us is getting the shaft, unquote. That took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. So Ralph Staples, one of the Lake County prosecutors, scoffed at claims that the murders were racially motivated, pointing out many of the murders involved robberies. Staples commented, quote, he was a bandit, not a bigot, unquote. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is um, tomfoolery. Yes, you're right. <laughs> 
So one possible explanation is that Ronald Harris, who was accused of being with Peterson at two of the killings, is a light-skinned black man with long hair. And on February 8, 1991, Harris, 21, was arrested in Gary on charges of aiding a criminal. He admitted that he was involved and confessed to accompanying Peterson during two of the murders, those of Harchan Dhaliwal and Rhonda Hammersley. On February 23, 1991, Carrie Jilson, who had witnessed Rhonda Hammersley's murder, identified Ronald Harris in a lineup. He was charged with Rhonda Hammersley's and Harchan Dhaliwal's murders. So now let's get into the trial. And this is a doozy because there was a lot of them. Yeah, there was a lot of trials. Here we go. (laughs) So Ronald Harris was tried in June 1991 for the murder of Harchan Dhaliwal. Harris claimed that Peterson did it, stating that he was merely a bystander who had Mm. stuff thrown at him. Okay, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Dodgeball, you're (laughs) it. The prosecution claimed that Harris had accompanied Peterson during another murder, that of Rhonda Hammersley. The witness to Rhonda's murder, Carrie Jilson, had identified Harris as Rhonda's murderer. And I buy Harris's account because she was the closest, right, to the shooting. She was in the car, right, when it happened? You mean Carrie Jilson? Yes, yes. Yeah. And she was the one who was like, I don't know about this sketch, y'all. Yeah, yeah. And she also said that um, she said he was white, but could have been Hispanic. And Mm -hmm. it was dark, you know. Yeah. So Harris had given a statement to the FBI in which he said he was with Peterson when Rhonda was murdered. But at his trial, he said he signed the statement because the FBI said he could go home if he did. However, he was convicted and sentenced to 68 years in prison. Peterson was tried for the seven shootings over a span of four trials. And I think this is a new one for Fruit Loops. Yeah. Four trials for one person. Yep. It's a record. Yeah. (laughs) On September 30th, 1991, Peterson went to trial for the murders of Lawrence Mills, who had been killed at the American Legion, and Rhonda Hammersley, who had been killed at the Petromart gas station. The prosecution believed this case was their strongest. But a key piece of evidence, the palm prints that connected Peterson to Lawrence Mills's vehicle, was suppressed before trial by the judge when he ruled that at the time, police did not have enough evidence to arrest him. Carrie Jilson testified at trial that it was not Peterson who shot Hammersley, even though Peterson confessed to the murder. But she was barred from telling jurors that she believed Ronald Harris was the real killer. I'm sure true crime people know this, but when you have a trial... The judge is like the referee, right? Right, right. So, you know, judges can decide what they allow and what they don't. And I just sometimes, and I think a lot of it has to do with what everybody's supposed to have a fair trial. Right. Anything that prejudices the defendant. Or anything that they do that is illegal, basically, or not not Mm -hmm. allowed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And part of that is to avoid the judge's rulings to from no judge wants their case to be appealed or their rulings to be overturned. Exactly. So they want to yeah. get it right. But again, more tomfoolery. Anyway, Peterson's defense attorneys used the composite sketch and Carrie Jilson's testimony to blow up the state's case. The jury deliberated for about six hours before acquitting Peterson on both murders. Jurors said reasonable doubt was created by Carrie Jilson's testimony and by the confusion over the original description of a white man as the killer. After the verdict, one juror said that there was disagreement among the jurors about the veracity of Peterson's confession and the way it was obtained. Mm. Another juror said that there was just not enough evidence to convict Peterson. One angry juror said, quote, 
just because we say he's not guilty, it doesn't mean he's innocent, unquote. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess I don't know. If I, okay. I um, mean, there also, just wasn't enough evidence. Yeah. And of the multiple trials, some of the juries were all white. Yeah. So in November of 1991, Antoine McGee, who was charged with attempted murder, entered into a plea agreement with the state in which he pled guilty to assisting a criminal and agreed to testify against Peterson in exchange for the state's agreement to drop the robbery charge. In January of 1992, Peterson went to trial for a second time, this time for the murder of Ora Wildermuth and the attempted murder of Robert Cotzo. That trial also ended in an acquittal. Jurors expressed doubt over the credibility of the police procedure used to find and arrest Peterson. Jury members said contradictory testimony and a nagging sense that police may have botched the investigation or coerced a confession swayed their decision. Messy ass hoes. Hey, messy ass hoedness. <laughs> At it again. <laughs> One female juror who asked not to be identified said, quote, I wanted to convict that guy. I felt he was very, very guilty. It makes me sick that we couldn't convict him according to the evidence. I felt my hands were tied, unquote. They didn't understand why police didn't get any fingerprints from the murder weapon or why they didn't seal off the crime scene the night of the murder. Police didn't find the shotgun shells until the next day. One male juror said, quote, everybody was unhappy with what the police did. The lack of evidence was the biggest problem, unquote. Jurors said only Peterson's taped confession put him at the murder scene. But even that raised questions. Mm -hmm. Police had not taped a 25-minute interrogation with Peterson the day before he confessed which led some jurors to wonder if Peterson might have been coerced. In March of 1992, ooh, that was a big year for America, um, the L.A. riots, riots yeah. da, 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 da. Peterson went to trial for a third time for the murders of Harshan Diwali and Marie Meitzler. This time he was convicted and the all-white jury recommended that he be executed. Hmm. The following May, after a fourth trial, Peterson was convicted in Lake County for the murders of brothers George and Eli Balvosky, but the jury recommended that he not be executed. you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. -S. 
On May 14, 1992, Ronald Harris was sentenced to 90 years in prison for Rhonda Hammersley's murder. On May 15, 1992, Peterson was sentenced in Porter County to death for the murders of Harchand, Dollywall, and Marie Meitzler. And on June 5, 1992, Lake Criminal Court Judge James Clement overrode the jury's recommendation for leniency in the Balboski murders, and he sentenced Christopher Peterson to death. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Tell us, Beth. This case was controversial for a number of reasons, such as the description of the suspect as a white man, Mm -hmm. the legality of Peterson's arrest and confession, Mm, and the collection of evidence. Check, check, check. Also, there were errors made during the trial, and in the final case, the judge overruled the jury's decision not to impose the death penalty. Which is a reach. Don't you think? It is. And and, (laughs) yeah, we'll get into it. It was mentioned in some articles that the trials with all white juries came to different conclusions than juries which included people of other races. But which trials were which was not specified. Interesting. We did find information that the third trial in which he was convicted and sentenced to death had an all white jury. Surprise! Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In any case, in July of 2003, a federal court threw out Peterson's conviction for the December 1990 murders of Marie Meitzler and Harchand Dhaliwal because of the errors committed during the trial. Specifically, an improper statement was made at trial by Porter County Prosecutor James Douglas when he pointed out to the jury in his closing arguments that Peterson had not testified on his own behalf. What? I don't know. What? <laughs> That's what he said. Uh, uh, I mean, he, he should, he's an attorney. He should know that. He should know That's, better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this was Peterson's constitutional right and could not be construed by jurors as evidence of guilt. That is just stupid. Yeah. That was, that's yeah. a stupid lawyer move. He yeah. got out lawyered. Then Peterson's death sentence for the Belofsky brothers' murders was vacated after the Indiana Supreme Court determined in August of 2004 that only a jury's recommendation could condemn a defendant to death. So, yeah, that judge overreached. Yeah. I'm also baffled by that the death penalty is a thing. I mean, yeah. if murder is wrong... Why does the state get to do it? Murder is wrong, yeah. Um, But Lake Criminal Court Judge James Clement had overruled the jury's recommendation for leniency for Peterson, who he ordered Peterson to be put to death in June of 1992. Peterson was resentenced to two 60-year terms in prison for the murders of Eli Balboski and George Balboski. Peterson spent 19 years on Indiana's death row. And I listened to a podcast where a lady interviewed him and he said that the last like five years while he Mm -hmm. was on death row, he did not have a death sentence over him. He had already been resentenced and he still sat on death row for five years because while Indiana decided whether or not to retry him. Wow. Yeah, that's. That seems like a, a, a problem with the system. Yeah, that's fucked up. Mm-hmm. So his family remained close to him and visited regularly. Six months after Peterson had been arrested, he and his girlfriend had another baby, a daughter. Hmm. And she grew up visiting her dad on death row and is now an adult. Wow. That really uh, brings it home, right? It really, it really does. You know, to imagine, uh, you know, you're... Your baby is born six months after you're arrested and is now an adult. 
Yeah, and he's still in prison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Peterson is currently incarcerated at Pendleton Correctional Facility, and he still asserts his innocence. His earliest possible release date is December 23rd, 2050. Merry Christmas, 2050. <laughs> um, if he lives that long, he would be 81 years old. While in prison, Peterson became interested in Eastern philosophy, religion, and mysticism. He called it eclectic spiritualism from a mixture of Eastern religions, Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, and Confucianism. On a website for prisoners, he called himself a, quote, Hebrew Israelite and a conscious new African freedom fighter, unquote. In February of 1997, he legally changed his name to Obadia ben Yisrael. Ronald Harris is scheduled to be released from prison in September of 2036. All right. Well, that's it for the story. Let's get into our takeaways. What do you think uh, made this individual or these individuals snap? What are your thoughts on this case, Beth? Well, this is a convoluted story, and I'm not, I'm really not sure what happened. To say the least. (laughs) (laughs) I do believe that Peterson took part in some of the crimes. I mean, the palm print on the car is pretty hard to explain away. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'm not convinced that he was the one in charge. Mm. A lot of people would have had access to the shotgun. Uh, It was in his bedroom of the apartment, his mom's apartment. His mom gave keys to the apartment to lots of people. I mean, she was handing them out like candy. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Although uh, the last crime was committed with a handgun. Yes. And Peterson had moved out of his mom's house. And the shotgun was still there. And I I don't know what that means, but there you go. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for pointing it out, though. OG of true crime. Appreciate it. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Ronald Harris, I think, may have been the real shotgun killer. And I believe Antoine McGee was also involved, particularly in the attack on Ronald Nitch. Yeah. He said he drove Peterson there, but uh, I don't know. Peterson has a car. Why would he have to drive Peterson there? Right. And I do think Peterson, like I said, was involved in some way, but I don't think anyone ever got the real story. I don't think so either. I don't think the police did enough work on this yeah. one yeah. to get to the bottom uh, not, of it. Not nearly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So why would Peterson have been involved at all? Well, he went AWOL from the Marines. Mm-hmm. I imagine he was trying to fly under the radar and was therefore unable to get a job. Right. That explains the robberies. He needed money, but not the murders. Lawrence Mills and Rhonda Hammersley's murders are particularly baffling to me. Like why they would have been chosen to be robbed. I don't know. Like, why would you think they had money? You know? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And I understand robbing stores, but random folks on the street, you're just not going to get much there. Unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. And the folks that were just randomly shot at, like the toll booth worker uh-huh. or the women like getting out of cars or walking down the street, that's that's mm-hmm. just pure anger. Somebody or was really angry. Somebody really destructive, just wanting to Yeah, but do... that comes from anger. Oh, does it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. At least I, I think so. Yeah. Oh, Oh, I I don't know. I've never done it before, but I just, you know, I imagine like I'm thinking of the movie Jackass, like. Let's just oh, go shoot that's stuff. A, that's a different, that's a different okay. thing. I mean, you're not <laughs> <Okay>. shooting people. <laughs> okay. I mean, those people are just jackasses. Sorry I went there. Right. They are just jackasses. Sorry. I, sorry I went there. Okay. You're right. 
So Peterson did express anger towards the Marines, uh-huh. and uh, he was probably frustrated with life in general after going AWOL. So yeah. I can see um, he probably had some anger, but I don't know if there was enough there to justify killing a lot of people. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, justify is the wrong word that would produce this kind explain. of explain. Explain, yeah. yes. There you go. There we go. Yeah. Explain, not an excuse. Yes, but. Uh, you know, we've talked about serial killers for many years now, you and me, friend. Yeah. And the things that they have in common, including military service. Yeah. And shitty childhoods. Shitty childhoods. And so the military service stuck out to me as one of the things that we commonly see with serial killers. This case has a lot of police fuckery. Yeah. A lot of prosecutorial fuckery. Yeah. And the transracial witness identification and racial prejudice on the part of the jury, I think, also play a part in us being like, what the fuck was going yeah. on here? Yeah. And then, you know, the fact that he was arrested illegally and the confession is questionable at best. And it just it it's a mess. It's yeah. a mess. It's, Girl, it is a fix big mess. your face. It's a yeah. mess. <laughs> and I think one of the prosecutors was like, oh, you can't you can't always bring up race. Uh, it didn't make any difference that the jury was all white. And you know what? That is bullshit because everything yeah, is. in this world, especially in America, has to do with race. We couldn't escape race if we tried. <laughs> Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just look at the results. I mean, the all white jury is the one that condemned him Convicted to death. Convicted him yeah. in no time at all and sentenced him to death. Yeah. So, yeah. But, you know, there's just too many examples in this um, of how race came into play. And I don't know if Peterson did all of the murders or not, but whoever did, clearly all those victims did not deserve to have their lives taken. Absolutely. Especially the ones who, I mean, everybody was just minding their beeswax. Yeah. You know, and that is often what we see. Just people working. Yeah. Doing errands. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Getting out of a car. Yep. Just nuts. Dropping things just, off. Yeah. Working at their shop. You know, just yeah. everybody's just doing their their best to survive and it's um just terrible. So yeah. well, let's uh that's that's it. Now let's that's get it. into bye. how <laughs> bye. <laughs> how not to get murdered. So <clears throat> If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. Mm -hmm. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So what do you got? Well, uh, this is not so much a how not to get murdered tip, but just a reminder that you're not actually in danger of being murdered 24-7. What? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So sometimes as fans of true crime, we think murder is around every single corner. And (laughs) sometimes, you know, it just causes anxiety. Yeah. So although we should be vigilant. Yes. Head on a swivel and all that. Uh We don't need to be hyper vigilant all the time and constantly live in fear. Sure. And I thought of this because I listened to a couple of episodes of Behind the Bastards. Uh Uh-huh. With Robert Evans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With Robert Evans. (laughs) Brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Parts one and two of why kidnapping conspiracy theories are everywhere. And it just made me think about this, how we're constantly you know, trying to figure out how not to get murdered. And and we don't have to be 
quite so vigilant. So just Ah. wanted to remind people that some of the stats that he gave Uh were really interesting. Like, Ah. um, I I can't remember what they were, but yeah, like you have like a 1% chance of being killed in a school shooting or, you know, it was stuff like that where you're like, oh my God, I'm scared for my kids every single day. But the stats are that you're probably going to be fine. Okay. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. We can all take a deep breath now. Yes, uh, take a deep breath and uh, let it out. Yeah, I think you can be vigilant while without living in fear. In fear. Does that make yes, sense? Exactly. That's that is you just in a nutshell. That's it. Ah, okay. <laughs> I just said a whole bunch we of words, and I could have said it. no. I could have just said it. what you said. I know. I'm very glad you stated everything that you did because it's important. It is. And yeah. we got this. So now yeah. let's get into shout out time where we shout out any content by or about people of color or any other marginalized or minoritized folks or any true crime goodies. I've got a little bit of everything. Okay. This is a documentary called The Stroll. It is on okay. Netflix and it's about black and brown trans sex workers in the meatpacking district in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And it's a documentary about them, by them, told by oh, them. Oh, wow. And it was really just eye-opening. It was beautiful. It wasn't all tragedy. You know, like part of it was celebratory. Oh, good. It was just a really, I thought it was a really great documentary. So there's that. Nice. And then Outlaws, The Good Thief. Have you listened to this yet? No, I haven't. So it's a true crime podcast hosted by Miles Gray, who's also been on Behind the Bastards. Oh, okay. With uh, Robert Evans. And yeah. it is about a Greek Robin Hood type who he like escaped from prison 10 times. <laughs> Nobody knows where he is now. He, oh, like, my gosh. One of his escapes was like out of a helicopter. Oh, my God. And nobody's seen him since 2009. Wow. And he literally stole from the rich and gave to the poor and is like a real life hero to wow. the people. I guess an anti-hero. Yeah. Yeah. So it is it is really good. I love the way Miles tells stories. Nice. So it's really great. I'm going to check it out for sure. Yeah. What do you got? So I just wanted to shout out Last Call when a serial killer stalked queer New York on Max. And it focuses on the victims of serial killer Richard Rogers, who murdered and dismembered at least two gay and bisexual men between 1992 and 1993. Whoa. Okay. So check that out. And then I also wanted to mention the podcast Lisk. Which we've oh, shouted yeah. out before, the Long yeah. Island serial killer. Uh huh. It has some new episodes out. Why did something happen? Well, <laughs> the Long Island serial killer suspect. <laughs> that guy was arrested. So uh-huh. they have a couple of new episodes out. Uh, that's today. By the time this airs, they might have uh, three. Okay. Three or four out. Who knows? But, okay, uh, I've been yeah. eating them up every time they they drop. I know so. every time it drops. Mm. Like yeah. I need to know more. It's very similar to when the Golden State Killer was arrested, you know, because it's just the case has been it hasn't been going on as long as the Golden State Killer. But it's been going on for a long time, like 13 years or something. And then all of a sudden they arrest a guy. It's just it's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. What the heck? He's been there the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So just to recap, that is The Stroll, a documentary on Netflix. Outlaws, The Good Thief, a true crime podcast wherever you get your podcast. Last Call, When a Serial Killer Stalked Queer New York on Max. 
and Lisk podcast updates wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Wait a minute. Uh-uh. We're here. It's the end of the show. It is indeed. <sighs> yeah. God dang it. <laughs> it. Okay. Well, Beth, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors, or if you don't have any money, give us a five-star review. It's free. Five stars <laughs> only, though. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Also, don't forget to subscribe, which uh, also helps us. That's right. So listen up, y'all. Listen close. This is a weekly podcast, and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Birds are very ugly. Um, <laughs> aren't you guys tired? It doesn't the hate, isn't it exhausting to hate so much? Oh, for fuck's sake. You just shot yeah. me, motherfucker. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> That's very funny uh, to me. <laughs> it's all nuts. It's Fruit Loops, I tell you. What? I don't know. What? <laughs> That's what he said. That's so 1990s, a jogging yeah. suit. A <laughs> Nissan Sentra in a jogging suit. Let's go have a good time. <laughs> Soon after the police. Whoa, I just lost my place. Hang oh. on a second. Southland. But student lent. Student. But. Christopher. 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 Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When she heard the church of dry, or she heard the crunch of dry leaves. The church of dry leaves. The church of dry leaves. I've never heard of this one. She heard the church of dry leaves. Oh my gosh. Oh Lord. (laughs) Where's my tambourine at? Um, (laughs) Wait a minute. He took a shotgun with him to buy rolling papers. That is odd. That That is is very odd. odd. (laughs) Maybe he was going to trade the shotgun for rolling rolling papers. papers. A shit ton of rolling papers. <laughs> yeah. Give me your <laughs> finest rolling papers, sir. <laughs> she said, I don't know why I can't speak today. She's, she's, she. I'm having trouble speaking today, too, so. Okay. Peterson went to went to try went to trial. <laughs> what the hell's going on today? <laughs> I don't know. I went don't know. To trial for the <laughs> Thank you for being a friend. <laughs> That's it.
That's it. Bye. How- <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.